0: Welcome back to Talk Back, the Dramatist Guild's podcast about building the theater we want to see. I'm your host, Christine Toy Johnson. This season has been all about collaboration. In this episode, I talked to celebrated director Lee Silverman about her ongoing commitment to form teams at an intersectional inclusion. Lee speaks candidly about her efforts to create parody on her teams. Here's Lee. Will you please introduce yourself Uh, to our listeners. Sure. My name is Lee Silverman,
1: and I am talking to you today from Brooklyn, New York, from the land of the Lenape, and I um, go by she, her.
0: So Lee, I, I just have been following your illustrious career for all of these years, and I'm so impressed by so many things. And of course, the artistry, but also that you have been such a champion of intersectional inclusion and i wanted to talk to you about how you have managed to keep advocating for it and why it's important to you wow
1: that's so um nice of you to say and certainly it has felt like the central ethos of why i direct it all and the nature of how i hope i um lead i have felt a deep personal responsibility to try and bring stories and underrepresented communities forward as best I can in whatever way that I can. And, and that has been, I think, sort of part of why I do theater at all.
0: I wonder if you could talk about your process for how you assemble your, your team. What, what happens first and how do you proceed finding the right fit?
1: I endeavor with designers to simultaneously, you know, develop vocabulary with people that are exciting to me and, and mix that up with people who I've already spent years developing vocabulary. And so like all of us, I have people that I love to work with. I've done, you know, a million shows with Clint Ramos, Rachel How can I have done over a dozen shows together. And then, and then I try and mix that up with people that are new to me. As a mission for a design team, I'm always striving to put all kinds of diversity together, both in terms of age, race, lived experience, who's worked together, who hasn't worked together. I had this experience when I was younger and was assisting, and the some of the directors that I assisted worked with the same design team over and over again. And I I saw the incredible possibility in that because you've already kind of worked out the ways that you talk to each other, how the dynamic works. You've worked out like what you like to do after a show, how you get notes, what restaurants you like to go to, what your favorite drinks are. Like, I get it. And then, you know, I also, I, I think I've, I've, pursued a kind of hybrid version of that, which is to say that there's, you know, generally I like to have somebody who is new to me or potentially two people or three people or sometimes an entire team depending on the project. I also try and match, of course, what the show is about with ethos and aesthetic. I really try and hold a sense of scale, scope, Possibility, possibility for meeting new designers. I'm always, every time I go to see a show, I'm always trying to figure out who's everybody, who, who's, who's that person working with, and I need to work with that person. And um, uh, like an example of that is um, I will say that I went to see the production of Schoolgirls that Rebecca Teichman did at MCC, and that I love the sound design so much for that show, and then wrote to MCC got Palmer, Palmer's email address, wrote to her, and then hired her for the next three shows that I did without having just one coffee, just because I was like, she is an amazing sound designer and now she's too busy, I'll never work with her again. When I'm putting a design team t- together, I'm also all the time thinking like, whose point of view do I need to bring that's different from everybody else in the room and whose point of view is going to match so beautifully with everybody else in the room and try and put that interesting dynamic collision together.
0: I'm so glad to hear you talk about that and how you... How you find people that you don't know, because I've heard, if you look in the same pools, you're only going to find the same people. Right. And then also on the other hand, other people saying, I don't have time to go. See everything. And so I tend to use the same designers over and over, and that doesn't seem to really create many opportunities for (laughs) expanding your circle, right? It's true. It's true.
1: And I will say that earlier in my career, you know, I was very focused on having a lot of women in the room, women in positions of power, women, you know, stage managers and designers. I had a real blind spot about racial diversity and age diversity. And I think certainly in the last I would say 10 years that I have really tried to make sure that there's at least 50% diversity inside of my teams if not more.
0: Do you start that conversation with the playwright first and then the producer or how does that how does that conversation go and how has it changed uh, as you've obviously gathered more clout uh, in the industry?
1: So it really depends, you know, every process is a little bit different. You know, sometimes the show will get produce because I've had a long relationship with a writer and then we kind of are developing a piece at a place. Sometimes I'm asked by a theater to come in and work with a writer, you know, so every process is is slightly on a different trajectory, but I have made it very clear with the producers that I work with, and of course it's different in the commercial world versus in the not-for-profit world, but I try and say pretty early on to whoever's in the producing position to say, I will not move forward unless there, there are certain conditions. And I would say that those conditions are related specifically to diversity. And also, I would say to how a show, certainly in in more recent years, as as I think I've gotten more confident in my ability to issue some requirements which i think that is that is a thing that is so hard earned and and won, but related to marketing, related to process inside the room, people that we might I feel might be important to, you know, whether it's some kind of advisor or consultant, an anti racism coordinator, a gender consultant, you know, that there's a variety of people who I will frequently want to bring into the room to help make sure that the process feels safe and inclusive. And the more I think directors and, of course, all those relationships take time to build, but I think the more that directors can step into a position of requesting and insisting on certain elements of care within an institution or in a commercial production, the, you know, the, the better the room could potentially be.
0: I love that you are your own inclusion writer. You know, it's it's crazy. You know, like when we did Lifespan of a
1: Fact on Broadway, we had the first all female design team on Broadway, which also I put together, not knowing that that was true, because how could that possibly have been true? Right. Um, and in 2018, like, how is that a thing that could have been true? When I went to hire Lucy McKinnon, our projection designer, she said, you know, I really want to do this show, but I don't think you're going to want me because I will have just had a baby. And I said, well, why wouldn't I want you? And she said, well, you know, I'll, I'll be breastfeeding and I'll have a hard schedule. And, and she had a, has another kid. And and I said, well, do you think you can commit to the time that you would need? And she said, yes, but you know, there's, and and I, and I said, why are you taking yourself out of the conversation then? Because it's not a problem for me if it's not a problem for you. And it turned out that three of the women on the design team were moms and had young kids and one of actually four, four were moms, one had sort of older kids, but it was very interesting to be then involved in the conversation around motherhood inside of our industry and when i went to the production manager and said you know we need to have a room where there can be breastfeeding and it would be really great if we had a separate fridge for their breast milk so that they weren't putting like their breast milk in the green room with people's lunches like you know let's just do this and literally the production manager who you know, has done every Broadway show. He said, no one has ever asked for this. And, and I was just like stunned. First of all, I was embarrassed that I had never done it for a collaborator before. I certainly have worked with other women who are breastfeeding. And I was appalled at myself that I had never done it before, but I was uh, uh, also, I was frankly shocked that that is where we are and have been. And I think the inhospitable environment for women in general and exponentially more so for, of course, women of color in our industry is just a thing that I, you know, that injustice just makes me um, insane with, with rage and, and, you know, <laughs> activism. So I just am yes. devoted to the, you know, getting rid of this, you know, unbelievable, I mean, glass ceiling doesn't even begin to cover it. Right. What what women in our industry have have been through
0: that's incredible have you ever encountered pushback? Sure. I mean, pushback comes in all forms.
1: It can mm-hmm. be blatant and obvious and it can be insidious. So I would say like an example of insidiousness is when I ask who else is directing in your season, because I really want to make sure that you have parity, racial parity, amongst directors. And, and there's kind of pushback around like, we don't know our whole season yet, or we're not sure. Or when you ask about Certainly when you ask about money and where money's being spent there's there's a kind of pushback because mostly what people are saying is like that's none of your business and focus on your own you know small thing and I think that is part of the transparency that people are calling for, which is to say how how do people get paid when I ask for one of my, assistance to be paid for pre-production work to be part of design meetings so that they can have a better experience overall and they say that's not precedent that's a kind of pushback when people basically say stay in your lane right which happens all the time that's a that's a that's a pretty strong sort of pushback. I would say the other major pushback that you get when I offer designers that I'd like to work with or stage managers that I'd like to work with, and you're told that they don't have enough experience. And I think that's another way that women and people of color have been kept out of the business and systematically kept down and kept in smaller roles. So I think all the time you have situations where men and specifically white men do small shows, direct small shows off Broadway. And then the next thing they do is a giant show on Broadway. And whereas women and and certainly people of color and women of color specifically do successful shows off Broadway and then are never vaulted forward. There's this amazing quote that I use all the time from Joey Soloway, which is women are hired for their experience and men are hired for their potential. And it's, I, I think that's completely true. I think yeah. we see it all the time every day and and certainly exponentially more true for women and people of color.
0: That's really fascinating. I, I was just reading uh, a study. So there's a, a website that the Guild and the American Theatre Wing have helped sponsor called countingtogether.org and people that have been collecting numbers about hiring stats. And SDC has a great, very, very long <laughs> report attached to that. And I was looking at it yesterday and noting the lack of parity in salary and looking at gender specifically, you, you mentioned something about that, about how you address that in asking for your assistants and your associates to be paid. How, how else do you see trying to push for more pay equity?
1: This is such an important question, Christine, and I I don't really know the answer, except that studies like the ones that you just quoted, which bring to light the discrepancy, is the first step. And then for people like you and people like me to talk about it all the time, because I think that money specifically is so rarely talked about. In theater, you know, I am am part of a variety of different directing groups and I am constantly, constantly amazed at the feelings that people have around, well, you know, how much did you get paid for that? Or what did your assistant get paid? You know, that there's, there's so much, there's, there's shame in asking. It feels distasteful to ask. It doesn't feel like we are, we're not practiced at bringing some of these questions to light and i think that we're not practiced at it because we've all been told that we're just lucky to have a job. Right. And so if you've like eaten that sentiment for breakfast, lunch and dinner since the the first moment you dreamed of being a theater person that you just be lucky to be there, then definitely you are not practiced at being like, well how much did you get paid for that or what did your assistant get paid for that or any of those things. We've we've been Kind of, you know, our our brain can't take it in that we can, in fact, bring some of these questions into the conversation and actually not make them so weird and not make them so crazy. And I think particularly, you know, and again, this is the big divide between commercial theater and not-for-profit theater. So in not-for-profit theater, there's minimums. Those theaters pay those minimums. People never get paid really above minimum in a not-for-profit setting. And by not-for-profit, of course, I mean like regional, I mean off-Broadway in New York and, and smaller theaters in New York and Chicago and like anything that's institutional. And And then it's really when you get closer to the money, when you get into commercial situations, Broadway and commercial productions, off-Broadway touring, that that's really where you start to see this kind of discrepancy. You see that discrepancy in hiring practices, of course, in the not-for-profits, but not in um, actual money. And I think the closer you get to the money, the more you see the same people making the money over and over, and those people are generally white men. But I truly think that the, 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 the antidote to it is talking about it, talking about it all the time. Um, And for directors specifically to say to their assistants, how are you making money while you're assisting me? How much are they, are you getting paid? You know, I, I want you to have, you know, do you want to be part of the casting process? Do you want to be part of the design process? If you want to be part of those early parts of the process, how can we get you compensated for your time? And if the, Um, won't do it or a producer won't do it, then what responsibility can I as the director take to make sure that, that people are being compensated for their time?
0: We'll be right back with more from director Lee Silverman. Welcome back to Talk Back. Today, Lee Silverman and I are talking about the importance of creating non-homogeneous creative teams. I asked Lee to open up about more of the initiatives she participates in to make the industry a much more welcoming and first place.
1: If you're not working all the time to make the industry a more equitable and just place, I'm not really sure really what you're doing alongside of whatever the work is. So it feels like as important to me as talking about you know, what my next projects are. This is the mission, I think, of a theater artist working today, how to leave it a more equitable, just sustainable place for more people. I have a few different director groups, one with the Mercury Store, which is intersectional group of people of different races and different ages who have come together. We meet once a month, and we've been doing that over the course of the whole pandemic. The Mercury Store has been funding it very generously, and that has been an incredible space. The goal to be to, yes, talk about race and talk about race inside our industry, but mostly to center us as directors and to really talk about the craft of directing from a intergenerational, intersectional point of view. I also am part of an intersectional group of mid-career directors, primarily who work in New York, who work on new work, to talk about accountability and anti-racist practices to come up with some agreements and then to share those agreements around with artistic directors, with each other, with directors in, in other places. But it really started as this intimate group of, of mid-career new play directors. And our thought was that if we could come up with similar ethos, practice, ways of doing work, That was accountable and measurable, actionable. And we were able to then say, well, I'm going to do it this way. So if you want me and then if you don't want me, that's fine. But the next three people you go to and the three people who came before all have the same ideas about the way to work that we could make some change happen sort of quickly in the new work community in New York. I also am very involved at SDC. I was on the board for 13 years. I just rolled off and was the vice president and continue to chair committees there related to issues around workplace, workplace safety, and feel very passionately that Although the union is, it's a labor union and focused on, of course, most importantly, contracts. And, but that also, there's a, SDC is very committed to the rights and responsibilities. And they take those words very seriously, the rights that we have, but also the responsibility that we have. And I believe directors and choreographers need to lead the way and continue to be at the the front of change and progress.
0: That's wonderful. So one of the things that I just learned about you yeah. is that you have your MFA in playwriting. Yeah. Yeah. So are you still, do you still have time to write at all or are you're so busy? You know, I don't write and
1: I, I actually have a double degree in directing and playwriting and I, I was at Carnegie Mellon and I was an undergrad in directing. And when I started my junior year, of of college as an undergrad director was desperate to meet the playwrights and there was no intersection at that time at carnegie mellon between the directing program and the playwriting program and partly it was because the playwriting program were grads and we were just like you know kind of nerdy undergrads you know we spent a year working on ground plans for for hamlet and picnic and we never sort of had the opportunity to do new work and my eyes were just huge like just please let me in i was so anxious to meet these incredible people and so my only option was to apply to be a, a playwright and and was i guess i was sort of good enough to get into the program and where they thought it was sort of a joke or something but i i i got in and i learned so much about directing while i was a grad playwright i learned about character and story i learned about how to talk to a writer i felt like i could I could really, especially because I'm not a great writer and I've had the incredible privilege of working with like truly the greatest writers in the American theater. So I really know that I'm not a writer, but it did give me insight into how difficult it is to write, what it is to face that blank page, what it is to share work, what it is to receive feedback to be met with people just being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like nodding their head, like without anything to say, like I, 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 I understood from the inside out. And I think that, that it has helped my, it, it, it's helped everything about my directing because I understand writing in a different way. And I'm so grateful for that time. And and i also think when i was younger and i first sort of came to new york and and i was able to say to a writer you know i have this i have this dual degree i think it gave me a little bit more legitimacy cuz they they were like oh you understand my suffering so right. it was that was great that was very useful but but truly that time that i was writing was so helpful to understanding how to collaborate with writers. And now I, I teach at Adjunct at Columbia and the class that I teach is a fundamentals of directing class for playwrights and producers and dramaturgs. And really it's a sneaky collaboration class because they don't really care that much about directing which is great because I don't have to teach them any of the boring stuff like ground plans and instead what I'm really doing is teaching them this thing that I feel like I learned when I was a playwright which is what is the nature of the collaboration between a new play and a director and how does that relationship develop? How does it form? What are the pitfalls? What are the traps? And, and so to teach fundamentals of directing to playwrights, dramaturgs, and producers, I feel like I'm, I'm getting in some of what I learned while I was, you know, undercover as a playwright.
0: That's so brilliant. That is really brilliant. Another thing that I've heard about you from so many of my friends and colleagues who are actors is how amazing you are to work with uh, as, a, as a collaborator with, with their skills, and I wonder if you could talk about your approach uh, to working with actors and, and casting too. Sure. Um
1: that's so nice of you to say Christine. Thank you. I
0: feel so out of practice after all this, you know,
1: after this year and a half. I'm just like I like what am I going to do with all these bodies in a room? It feels so terrifying. But I I feel incredibly grateful for, you know, the many deep relationships that I have with actors. The experience of bringing a new play or a new musical to life is so heavily reliant on a company's willingness to go forward with you, um, no matter what you put in front of them. And it is, I can only imagine, a terrifying experience. And you have to be a certain kind of actor to sign up for a show that when you audition for may not be finished, um, maybe has never had any, you know, it's, it's such a different process. You know, it's always groping around in the dark. Always, no matter what kind of art you're making, what kind of live art you're making, you have no idea how it's going to be received or interpreted. But when it's something new and when it's an ambitious piece that is new, there is literally no floor. Like anything can happen over the course of the time that you're working on it. And um, I've just been in, you know, I don't know, I've directed like 50 seven new plays and musicals or something in New York. It's like, I I don't know, some crazy number. Somebody just told me that that number and I was really like, well, that seems excessive. I I just think like the, the number of times that I have had the experience of actors saying like, where'd that scene go that I auditioned with? that doesn't exist anymore. Or like, where's the, you know, um, number of times that I've come in after a dress rehearsal and said to a company of actors, like, great, great, like a lot worked, but a lot didn't. So here are the scenes that are getting cut, like take out your pen, like take out your pencil, you know, the, the number of times that we've taken material away from actors, and then, you know, worked through the process of that loss and grief of whatever it was that was important to them, and then put it back or put it back in a different place, or rearranged every word in a sentence. And I just have the utmost awe and respect for performers who are able to do that, who are able to roll with that, who are able to put their egos aside and to say what's best for the show, which I trust you with, to be able to know what's best for the show, and then to follow you. And that trust takes time. I feel like I have to earn it. I really try and um, keep Actors very much in the loop of what, what, and why decisions are being made as much as 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 you know seems it worthwhile and important. I try and really build in time into my process for us to talk as a company. I I try to um, hold everyone's anxiety and not let any leak out. Of course, sometimes that happens, but you know I also take that part of the job very seriously um, and. I think that the kind of inclusive captaining that I like to take on involves people really understanding where we're going. And so I will always really try and make sure that there is conversation and time for input and for um, a, true, a true dialogue, both in terms of what my vision is, where they intersect with that, what their feedback is about that vision. And, and I would say, particularly in, in the experiences that I've had where I've been in rooms where I, I'm, I'm one of the only white people or person in the room, or an experience where I'm directing a piece that is not about my own lived experience, white or not. And I think that in those situations, it's um, a leading, leading from behind is, is always why I like to move, move through a process. And the people that I hire, being able to be transparent with them, sort of as you asked about in the casting process, being able to say, this is what I imagine the process is going to look like. Do you feel up for that? And and leave people with the most opportunity to make sure that this is the right intersection for them. So when I know that a part's going to change or when I know that a process is, you know, we're really like in the stew on it, um, I, I like to just say that because I want to make sure that people feel both engaged in the struggle that we will all be in and part of it, but also completely clear about what's being asked of them and why.
0: That's great. Thank you. And one of the one of the things I want to go back to if you don't mind, and I sure. think we we I've, we sort of touched on this how have the conversations changed over the years? with producers, acknowledging that it's going to be different with the nonprofits and the commercial producers, but how have you seen those, these conversations about making sure that you have the kind of inclusive team that you want? Have they changed or have, or how have they changed?
1: Yeah. How have they changed? I will say change is so interesting, right? Because there's there's kind of the big continuum and then there's like what's happening in the moment and and just to say that when i directed lisa crone's play well in 2006 i was the seventh woman to ever direct a straight play on broadway wow and that is shocking right like Mm -hmm. that is Mm -hmm. because there were so many incredible incredible women who came before me, who I stood on their shoulders. And I think like none of them were able to direct a play on Broadway. Like why, how is that possible? There have been, of course, since 2006, I mean, I think there were like seven women last year or the year before we've had women, you know, win the, like there's been change in that way. Then you look at how many people of color have directed on Broadway. And the stats have stayed relatively the same, which is like yes. basically one. Yes. Sometimes one. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In 2010 it was one. In 2020, it was one. Like mm-hmm. so, so there's change and there's change, of course. That will that is already different in this upcoming year. I mean, we're already looking at, you know, at least seven, if not more, plays and musicals directed by people of color. And I just like, that is a long overdue correction. I will say that in terms of my own sense of where I fall in the continuum, you know, it, it, in 2006, having the opportunity to direct Lisa's play on Broadway. So to be a gay woman and direct a play written by a gay woman, like that dealt openly with her being gay. It wasn't about that, but it, that also felt kind of subversive. And Jane Howdy Shell, who at that time had not been, you know, now Jane is like, you know, the queen of Broadway, but certainly right. at that time, you know, to have us three unknown weirdos, <laughs> you know, only, we could only have been brought to Broadway by someone like Liz McCann, who is, was, you know, totally out of the box Broadway producer and was also singular in her vision and was one of a kind. And I think we have, I think if she was coming into the scene now, we would call her a creative producer. But at the time, there was no name like that for her. So I, I, and now there's a fleet of young, cool, interesting forward-thinking individuals who are gonna change Broadway and I think like I think about Liz and they stand on the shoulders of somebody like Liz McCann who had the like guts and chutzpah and like frankly like insanity to bring a show like Well to Broadway but I do I do think things are changing I think that artists are taking more in general, more responsibility for themselves. I think they're trying to, you know, eat less of the candy that's like, you just are lucky to have a job and to instead focus on the bigger picture, the bigger ecosystem, their place in it. And also, you know, this question that I get asked a lot, um, particularly from younger directors, which is what, how do you balance work and self-care? And And I always say, like what balance you know like that's like that's and and i will say that that's also something that's part of this change which is that people's emotional life their mental health is also being talked about and and i look at the next generation or the two generations now who follow and i think they actually are talking just like we're starting to talk about financial transparency it's also where is the mental health Initiative inside of our business. Where is the care being taken for individuals, and you know what is the personal agency that people have? And this is all feels like part of the change that is forward moving, and that is I'm so grateful for it. I'm just in in I feel so inspired when I talk to younger directors, and they have these questions around. I mean, I could just I never would have said to a a director who who was before me. I never would have said what's what do you do for self care. I mean, it just never would have occurred to me as a real question because I thought like the whole point was to turn yourself into a robot. (laughs) So, you know, I think like when I think about that, I think, oh, yeah, change is possible and it's happening and it is moving and like 2021 and 22 that season on Broadway is just like, I can't wait for it. And, you know, I just look at this next generation of theater makers and I'm like,
0: um, just amazed. Thank you to Lee Silverman. Lee will be part of Vineyard Theater's upcoming season off Broadway. Visit vineyardtheater.org for more info. Talkback is a production of the Dramatist Guild of America. It's produced by Amy von Masick, Sarah Storm, and me, Christine Toy Johnson. Robert delaney Prime mixes our show. Our theme music is by Andrea Daly. The Dramatists Guild Presents Talkback is distributed by the Broadway Podcast Network. This is our final episode for the season, but we'll be back next fall. Who should we speak to next? What topics should we cover? Let us know online by using hashtag Talkback. As always, to be continued.